Also, as assassin crouches on chips. Very base. Also, as assassin. Sorry, it's actually um popcorn that's covered in like um, Oreo something. <laughs> Bit of double audio there because I forgot to mute my Twitch stream. Very cool. And we're technically live, so give me a minute. Open curse. Up, oh, there's a bit of background noise. Uh, what kind of background noise? Uh, when you're speaking, there's like a static sound in the background. Oh. How about now? Uh, not as much, but it's still there. Okay, so double check, double check your audio suppression and make sure your mic's plugged in all the way. Mm -hmm. Me and uh, Assassin sound fine though. How about now? Nope, still there. Poopy. How about that? Nope. Balls. Here. Filter. If you want to take a listen, what? Here. Oh yeah. Oh, that's just my computer fan. I can't fix that. Oh, that's just oh. my computer fan. I can't fix that. Oh, that's. Just oh. Well, that's not good. That's not good. Stop it. <laughs> Let's try moving the mic away from the fan, though. How does that sound? Then? Sounds good. It's very quiet now. Okay. Yeah, I faced the mic away from the computer, so hopefully it doesn't pick it up as readily. Yeah, Pippa, that's exactly what I'm eating right now. Gotcha. I just didn't want the, the audio. No, you're good. Put in the podcast thing. <laughs> oh, I have a Minecraft update. That's cool. That's what I was talking about. Well, you smell. Alright, uh, let's go ahead and go live, though. Uh, I'm getting Minecraft set up. Uh, for those of you on Twitch... I will have audio or video very shortly for you. For those of you who are joining us by podcast, I'm sorry you don't get to have video. Shame. I'm sorry. Uh, have a good one. <laughs> ah, sorry, please. <laughs> You're welcome. Are you excused? Sorry. Uh, my brain is like going all different places right now, and that's that's very silly of me. Uh, Assassin, would you like to open us up with our, our regular little spiele? All right, let me just uh, finish Nomen real quick. Yes, and then we will go ahead and get started. The man consumes chips like he's a wood chipper. How much chip could a wood chip chip a wood chip 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 chip? Enough. All right. As much as an assassin would. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Okay, all yours. All right, ready? So, king of the battlefield too, right? Yep. Yes, sir. All right. Welcome to History on the Go, Episode 5, King of the Battlefield 2, Electric Boogaloo. We are covering artillery once again, because we felt that we uh, didn't get enough of it last time. Yeah, nowhere near enough of artillery. Uh, as usual, thank you for joining us, those of you who are joining us in our audience tonight. You guys are more than welcome if you have something that you want to add to the conversation, be it in text or with your voice. Uh, if it's text, just let us know in the voice ch or in the text channel provided in the stage. If it's voice, just raise your hand. We will call on you, and you can come up and talk to us. Um, other than that, let's keep things uh, respectful. Let's all be nice and polite to each other. 
uh, try to keep things on topic, so let's not get, let's try not to go wandering, because <laughs> oh boy, we still got a lot to talk about artillery, and uh, we're very bad about our little tangents, unfortunately. And um, last but not least, let's try and keep the politics uh, over in the politic area. Uh, let's focus on the history book tonight, boys. Let's uh, let's focus yep. on that kind of fun stuff. We don't care who made the gun. We just we just want to look at the gun. <laughs> yeah, the gun pretty. Gun pretty. Speaking of, uh, when we last left off on artillery, we had just gotten to World War One, and we had talked about um, a couple of things. We talked about recoilless or recoil systems. We talked about the re resurrection of the trench mortar. We didn't really get to talk about railroad guns, though, and other insane shenanigans that came out of World War One. So let, let's start off World War One with railroad guns. And it's funny because. Really, only the Central Powers, if I remember correctly, used, like, railroad guns to mass effect. The French definitely built a couple. Uh, I believe the British... No, I could be wrong on that. I don't know if the British ever got one built. Uh, but the French definitely built a couple. But the Germans are the ones that are really most notable for their use of railway guns. Um, in both in both World Wars. <laughs> yeah, in, in both World Wars, you're right. Um... I don't actually know about the Russians. Does anybody know if the Russians made a railroad gun? If not, I'm going to go Google it real quick. I got it. Yeah. While he's doing that, um... Yeah, they built one. They did yeah. build one? I feel, like, I feel like the, the moment one, one nation builds one, everybody else is kind of inclined to build one as well. Mm -hmm. You know, just kind of like that evenness of, uh, of firepower. Yeah, I mean, and there, there's a historical precedent for railroad guns going very far back. Uh, we actually see a couple of them in the American Civil War. Uh, I found one. I was gonna say, I'm not sure if we talked on that one. Oh, yeah, that's that's a pretty one right there. That's a dollar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a Union-built one. Uh, the Confederates also built one. That was really cool-looking. It, it was a siege mortar-looking thing. You know, So yeah. it's got that really stubby barrel, very wide bore. Um, yeah, and I believe I believe we did touch on that. Um, I think yeah, I uh, say, I some, think somewhat we, we we talked about a like one particular instance of it, mm -hmm. but you know it you, you get one good idea and it's it just kind of sticks throughout the the ages until technology gets better to the point where it's like eh, we don't really need it anymore. Right, and I think also the reason we don't necessarily see it after the American Civil War, but until World War One, is because we fight these little wars, such as um, Spanish-American War, the fight over the Philippines, uh, some of the European wars that were smaller scale. So the French and Europe, or the French uh, Franco-Prussian War. I couldn't get my words out there. Sorry. Uh, they they weren't really these large industrialized like slow-paced wars. You, you've got more higher speed, faster pace, people are moving still. We haven't gotten back to trench warfare that we see at the end of World, or Civil, American Civil War. Uh, places like the Siege of Petersburg. And really, that's where these big, huge siege pieces, because they, they they're siege artillery, uh, that's more where the, they come into prominence, I think would be the good word for it. Where, yeah, I'd say that that'd be pretty fair, because you're looking at guns that normally it's a lot of material and they fire something bigger than usual yeah so you're not really looking to use it all the time because they're right. going to be expensive on the on the uh upkeep and the the just the rounds that you fire well not only that but it's hard to get those rounds because you have to most of these rounds are custom made I mean, you can't just go to your average ammunition oh, yeah. and say hey i need like a 500 millimeter siege artillery gun 
And they're going to look at you funny like, um, we don't have the material to cast that, <laughs> let alone put it together. Let alone carry it. Uh, I yeah. remember... I, I can't you know how remember many bullets we can make with that? <laughs> right? Like, I remember reading somewhere that the Paris gun used by the Germans in World War I, uh, that the, the sing- a single shell from the Paris gun weighed the amount of, like, 10 men, and it, car- and it required about 10, 15 guys just to carry it. And they're just gonna try and load that in the stock stockpile. No, they they had custom rail cars and like custom storage systems for these things. Oh yeah, oh, look at yeah, Pip. Oh, no. He uh, posted a he posted a front angle of that. That's beautiful. Thank you, Pip. Uh, one correction: this the Russians did not make one till World War Two. Oh, okay. So and there's they had one that was working till 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1991, almost the turn of the century. That's that's actually wild. Zen, can you tell me if the stream is actually showing the server? Uh, no, currently it is black. Oh, big cry. I'll play around with it real quick then. Uh, while we're talking about, or while we're doing that then. Yeah, um, something else that's, we see this, we just see a lot of really big siege warfare during the this period of the First World War as well. Uh, something that's really fun to talk on is a not actually a German or French weapon. It is a uh, Austrian weapon. Uh, how many of you guys are familiar with Skoda? That's probably a no. <laughs> <laughs> so Skoda is a Czech automobile fa- manufacturer right now. All right, but but. <laughs> World War One. Skoda made a 600 millimeter siege howitzer. As you do if you are a general parts maker for <laughs> that also has a, a license with the military. You know. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get a picture of it. There's the 305. I got it. You got it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah just him. something that we see a lot of uh, when we get into World War One and also in World War Two is these mountain guns. So that's kind of what the Skoda was, even though this is like obviously a more severe version of a Skoda, or of a siege weapon. Uh, you see this insert this uh, rise of smaller or more uh, what's a good word for it? Um, more specialized weapons. So you see these things that aren't really like great in an open field, but would be, man, it's an excellent feat. It's an excellent, why is there a floating ch- chocobo? It's excellent in, um, in these, like, mountainous terrain, this mountainous terrain, where you can't just, like, run artillery around everywhere. You can't just go shooting at each other with field guns, because guess what? There's mountain in the way. Yeah. And, of course, you're gonna... For, for general combat, you're gonna favor the smaller ones anyways, because they're a little easier to move. Um, and you're really, you're not trying to fire that far at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're just going from trench to trench or whatever, whatever the case may be. You're not, you're maybe bombarding a town or something, but you're not really going to need that really big gun until you find a, a group of the enemy that are, you know, brought in together. And then, you know, when, when in concern of the, railway gun most of the time you usually need a railway to get it there 
you know, so. I'm getting of that 600 mortar is just the Carl Grant. Yeah, the Carl Grant. I was actually wrong anyway. It is the 305 Skoda. Which, uh, yeah, that's still sorry, a really it. big artillery piece. Uh, I was unfortunately getting my uh, siege weapons mixed up. We will go over the Carl Grant, but uh, that's World War II. Found it. You just had to give me the correct millimeter. Yes, uh, that that definitely helps. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, but yeah, so we got this. You've got these giant siege pieces, and you know they're not really designed for attacking. They're not designed for um, you know open field combat. They're designed for literally. Uh, you sit on a mountainside. You shell the other end of the mountain. You see a lot of this when you're you get to the central powers. You, you see the Germans don't really build these big huge siege mortars like this. Um, I mean, I think they built, like, one or two, like, the Grasse Morser. But most of what um, these come from is Austrians fighting, because guess who the Austrians are fighting at this point in time when these are becoming popular in, like, 1915, 1916? They're fighting Italians. And what? And um, so you've got the Asanza River and that whole region there in northern Italy, I want to say. And what used to be Austria is northern Italy now. Um... Gee, I wonder why. It's almost like the Austrians kind of lost that war. Uh, point being, though, that you, you see this um, this need for these big, huge mountain guns that can still do the siege. You can still do the siege thing that they need, but they're I'm not going to say more maneuverable, but they're easier to use in such difficult terrain, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're going to want something smaller to haul around a mountain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um... You know, at some point, at some point, your rounds can just kind of get over the mountain, anyways. So you don't even have to really get that close. But yeah, Zen, you know, Zen actually posted a very good picture. If you guys look in the, there we go. In the text channel, and for those of you who are following on the podcast, it will be the chapter heading. Look how small that thing is. I mean, I know it's a big, huge siege piece, but that's that's movable by like four dudes. I'd probably want a crew of like eight to ten to move it, but you could move that with four guys. That is, yeah. or yeah. or for more example, donkeys or oxen or horses or whatever you have to just haul things around. Yeah, like look how big that is compared to those people. That's for as far as artillery goes, that's tiny, especially for this time yeah. period. Yeah, real short barrel too. Mm-hmm. Very easy to move into position. Very easy to load and fire. Probably fires fairly fast. Yeah, and, and then you don't have to worry about you don't yeah breach loader. Uh, but you don't have to worry about, you know, getting your barrel stuck on a tree or something so you can get it in a smaller area as well. That, and it, it aims high. That short barrel means that you can mm-hmm. aim it much higher than you would expect a field gun to be aimed. There's yeah. one on the move. Oh, uh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, see, there's only, like, two dudes up probably on each side. You probably, it's, I'd probably say probably eight to ten man crew for that. In a team to haul around the rest. <laughs> Ammunition and well, everything else, yeah. From the appearance of it, they move the cannon, and then they have another trolley that had, they just placed a barrel on. Yeah. Which, you know, that's super sensible. Very easy. Yeah. Keeps the keeps the profile low and everything, you know. But if you, if you go back a little bit, I posted a couple of uh, really good photos, and they're from World War One, I, I believe, where it's uh, you can see the artillery bombardments going over. Oh yeah, and they're you know they're just you know you could you could 
almost say they're like dueling, you know, they're just kind of firing back and forth. And, you know, the, the different arches, the, you know, it's, it's just really cool to see those kinds of pictures because you don't see that sort of stuff in modern day uh, as often mm-hmm. where it's just these big barrages because there's just more effective ways of uh, getting to the enemy, any, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, moving on to... Um... Hello, Brain, if I can function here. Moving on to the Eastern Front. The Eastern Front's also this very rough terrain, this very... Not necessarily mountainous, but difficult terrain that you have to deal with. So having these shorter-barreled siege-style weapons, you see a lot of that also on the Eastern Front with the Russians early into the war, 1915, up till they surrender in 1916 with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, or is it... Was that 1917? Somewhere around there. And so you see these, um... You see these kind of big guns over that way instead of the more traditional, longer field guns of the time. Yeah, but, you know, you can also... The the general idea of the um, cannon obviously didn't change. And you can see some cannons that look almost the exact same as your... Uh, as your black powder cannons, the ones that, you know, usually you'd load from the front and sponge and everything. And they have a very similar design to that. Mm-hmm. They just added a more modern barrel on front. Yeah. Well, here's a Russian artillery piece that uh, specifically a 76 millimeter called the M1900. That was made in M1900. And yeah. it resembles a old black powder cannon down to yeah. the very T's. Yeah, the the only difference is, you know, of course, um, what you're firing, you know, and I believe those are seats right there on uh, over the over the wheels. Yes, which <laughs> is um, kind of funny to me. I mean, you gotta travel. I don't. Somewhere. I don't. Yeah, fair enough, but <laughs> it's just like kind of an odd place to put the seats, but you know nothing else i guess yeah just don't stick your arm through those freaking holes and you're good you know mm-hmm. and then of course you also have we were talking siege guns here and you got the russian six inch yeah that looks like a standard howitzer that we would use but just, just yeah you know what's funny about, about that? that that reminds me a lot of the krupp c98 c86 uh which was a coastal gun and it looked yeah. very, very similar to that. Um, speaking of big siege weapons, let's talk about one that a lot of people who are really big into like World War One and World War Two era weaponry. Let's talk about Big Bertha. I already yeah. got that picture on standby. I was gonna say you got that picture on go. standby. I hope. Go ahead and post it. There you go. Big old cannon. Oh yeah. So this is a forty-two centimeter cannon. Which, for reference, that's 420 millimeter. That is a big cannon. Yeah, but it's definitely not going to be the biggest one we cover tonight. <laughs> oh no, we'll get to bigger once we get to World War II. World War II. But for World War One, this the Big Bertha was the absolute largest artillery piece used in World War One. Um, this thing, or, well, used more by more than one cannon. Like I they, found they a made, slightly higher quality picture. They made more than one of these things. This was a standard issue artillery piece. Which, uh, good lord, you know. 
Big chunky. Yeah. Yeah. Big chunky. One made into an emplacement. Excellent. Thank you, Zen. Yeah, there these are big guns. Notice the guys running this cannon are smaller than the barrel of the cannon. You can fit a man into the barrel of this cannon. De uh, definitely the breach. Yeah, you could you could definitely shove someone into the breach, and I'm sure some like hazing or something happened where <laughs> someone probably did get shoved in there. I could see it, like being just... being military. Uh, I I'd imagine. Oh yeah, especially in the time period. Like this... shoot it. I think if I think if our modern artillery was that thick, you know, <laughs> I I think I think people would get shoved into the breach. <laughs> Oh, I've seen some funny memes, so yeah, that's that's very true. There you go. There's some pictures of it. Yeah, that thing is... The, the shell itself, for y'all who are attending uh, us by home, the shell itself stands to about top of the pectorals of a soldier, and is about as wide as the soldier. That is... And that's not even, that's not even with the casing. Yeah, that's just yeah. from the shell itself, which is insane. Yeah, you could you could put your arm over it, uh, parallel if you're average height. And it, the the um, if we're talking, with it, the it'd be about a ninety degree angle from the, the yeah. With the casing, it's taller than an average person. Yeah, this thing is massive. It's actually massive. Uh, is there anything else that we need to cover? Oh, you know what we haven't covered? That's a bit of a spicy, haha, spicy topic uh, for World War One. Uh, but we need to cover it because it's important through World War One, and actually vaguely important in World War Two uh, to lesser extent. Is gas canister rounds? Oh well, yeah, uh, the uh, the war crime war crime, uh, war crime shell. Yeah, uh, just to preface, obviously, all of these are very much regarded as a war crime now under the Geneva Conventions. They were not under the Hague. No, they were under the. No, they were not under the Hague Conventions. Come to think of it. That is, if you if they the nation signed the, nation <laughs> the Geneva Convention. The Geneva Convention. Yeah. Remember, uh, it's not a war crime if they didn't sign the paper. Yeah, Zen posts a really good picture of what Blue Cross shell would look like. Note all these shells are very clearly marked. Um. Let's just be upfront. Gas shells are really, really terrible. Yeah, and the worst part is that you know it, it more often than not the wind would change and it would affect your own. Yeah, actually, you know um, that's a very good note. Uh, the first usage of gas shells were by the British uh, at the Battle of the of Ypres. Uh, for yeah, it's pronounced Ypres, I think. Uh, Ypres. Basically, is how it's spelled, but I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Eeps. Um, and that exact thing happened. Uh, they let out their gas canisters. I think they were handheld canisters at that point. I believe. I believe uh, at that point they were using just like barrels full of the stuff, mm -hmm. and they would just hope that the wind's in the right direction, no, or would stay in the right direction. Well, yeah, stay in the right direction, but they would sit there and test it and. Uh... Then they would open up these canisters. Let me see if I can get one of these canisters. But uh, they would... Oh, here it is. It looks almost like a flamethrower tank. And they would just spin the handle on it, and it would open up the tank. Yeah, that's uh, what I was looking for. And notice notice the, the, the protection these guys are wearing, which is none. Yeah, both... <laughs> both the... Uh, 
the central powers and the entente figured out very quickly, man, you know, that's not a good thing. I wonder if this could affect my own soldiers. I, I think this might affect the trout population. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just kind of one of those things where you try whatever, whatever, you, <laughs> yeah, not service related, you, but you, you try anything at this point to break the trench because that's what that's what the gas is used for is to get people out of the trench or to uh scatter mm -hmm. uh, uh soldiers so well it's the uh those gases were lighter than air so they would yeah. go with the wind very easily yeah however when you're getting into the later war with like the heavier gases like the and they just sit the they just sit in uh in a shell or uh or a trench yeah well, the Blue Cross shells, for an example, when they hit, they were a heavier gas than air. So if they didn't hit the trench, they would seep into the trench and go deeper and deeper. And as you guys probably know, when they made these trenches, they made the bunks and the command posts deeper into the ground so they're mm -hmm. not easily shelled. Well, now these places are getting heavily gassed. Yeah, something else important to note about that is that's where, um, that's where a lot of these uh, gas shells start getting fired airburst style. Because it does, it, it goes over the, the um, what you call it, and then just seeps into it. Why is there so much bread in the furnaces? But, so like, they would literally just airburst rounds out, and it'd be gas shells, and they'd drop them straight into the, uh, to the trench line, and then just ruin everybody down there. Not to mention the shells, or the, the foxholes created by normal artillery shells. Which, um, more, you know, more often than not, they would, uh, hold water, and then, um, you would get, uh, your gas in that, and it would go, it would get into that water, so you, you hear accounts of soldiers taking cover within the, uh, those foxholes, only to get chemically burned. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it... And speaking of chemicals, White, or White Cross and Blue Cross weren't even the worst one. The worst one was uh, used by the Allies. To, I just never picked it up, I don't think, although I'm sure somebody can correct me on that. Um, mustard gas. Which I'm not going to go out of my way to tell you guys how to make mustard gas. I'm sure you horrible people can Google it yourselves. <laughs> yeah, put uh, put that on your own record. Yeah, and I'm, <laughs> I'm good. I know how to make it. I'm, I don't want to know how to make it. <laughs> It's well, now way. you're on a watch list, so... Oh, I, listen, I'm, I'm ex-military. I'm on, like, so many lists. Um, but anyway... Uh, anyways. Anyway. Um, it's actually interesting. This will lead us into our World War II section of discussion. Anyway, white or mustard gas is, like, so was such a actually, bad, horrible gas. If you, if you look into the, um, the picture that has the uh, gas shells, um, the... Fifth one is mustard oil. Okay, so or the mustard Germans, gas. I was gonna say so the Germans did pick up mustard gas. That's good. Yeah, and yeah, then the next one is sneezing oil and he. <laughs> oh my lord! Listen, at least it's better than the gay shells. <laughs> that was an interesting uh, experiment that didn't work. Yeah. I don't say mm. that to be mean to homosexual. Hey, those who identify as homosexual, that's just that's literally what it was called. Yeah, it, it had uh, pheromones in it. 
and the hope was that the pheromones would cause the enemy soldiers to get intimate with each other, which would leave them um, susceptible to be attacked. And yeah, of course, it didn't really work very well. So, so dumb. Uh, oh, Barracuda like would like. Barracuda has something else to add. What you got? Kuda? I was gonna say. Uh, Germans during World War One got actually really crafty with their gases. Uh, when the, especially with the British, when they started developing gas masks, uh, the Germans developed an odorless, colorless gas that wouldn't take effect for thirty minutes, and it would just induce vomiting. So they'd send that shell over first, wait thirty, like just wait thirty minutes for these guys to put their masks on when they were going to send another shell. And as soon as they those guys would put their mask on to cover for the incoming gas that they saw, they'd start vomiting into their gas mask and need to rip it off. That's actually a really smart that way of really doing crafty, it. Because yeah. you know, yeah, like is this say, is this World War One? You say or yes. World War? II? Yeah, it's World War One. The Germans yeah. actually swore off the gas for World War Two, and I'll explain that in a bit. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's actually really very intelligent from the Germans. And because, you know, think about it. You've already ingested this gas, so you're nauseated in 30 minutes when the, the first the first gas is done. And they're sending the second gas over, like Kuda's saying. So, not only are you being hit by this vomit gas, but you are also being hit by whatever else they've sent at you. Yeah. It's war. War is a very terrible, uh, thing. terrible thing, but it sure does make research go by f quicker <laughs> well not only just research God. but just human ingenuity and killing each other sorry i was laughing at what pippa just posted oh, oh. <laughs> pippa <laughs> that's pretty good though it's pretty good oh lordy we're all going down yeah probably uh, for those of you that are listening he posted the spongebob episode where they're running through a mall getting sprayed with perfume and it and it reads underneath allied soldiers run from a chlorine gas attack launched by the germans lord have mercy on me <laughs> but I'd, I'd also like to bring up um uh the start kind of the beginning of mobile artillery Hmm. or uh, self-propelled artillery because I believe we start seeing that towards the end of World War One. Yeah, there's a little bit towards the end of World War One, mostly on the German side. Um, I don't have it up on right now, so give me a minute. Well, the Allies also had one. If you've got that one, go ahead and talk about it. Uh, the Allies started you basically just use their mark 5 tanks and the shell a tanks is just a way of mobile platforming and so they put these cannons on them for long range artillery and then just continue to bombard positions yeah i think there's even one uh with a mortar on the rear of it like called i can't remember the name of it but there's a Mark V out there with a mortar attachment, and it elongated the uh, the length of the track and everything. But it allowed the crew to operate a mortar while on the move. It's pretty wild. And I believe the French have actually a pretty big one, um, and it's actually starting to get kind of more modern looking. Mm -hmm. I could be I could be wrong. This could be World War Two, but I believe it's World War One. Right. But I'm gonna post a picture right now, and look. Just look at that one. 
It's ah, the Canon de 194. Yeah. That's big. That's a... it. It's actually a Mark IV, and it's called the Tadpole. Tadpole. Because oh, it's got the longer tra tra treads in the back. <laughs> That's funny. That is actually pretty funny. Uh, I cannot find the German one, so maybe the Germans didn't make one, and I'm just imagining things. <laughs> the world may hey. never know. Music. Yeah, here's here's um. I will say something that the Germans did make that'd be cool. To look at is the Farpanzer. This one is a uh, late World War One, and it's it is French. Yeah, that was definitely it. Ho uh, ho. Uh, what'd you put here, Stallings? Let me look real quick. Oh, okay, gun carry. Excellent, thank you. It looks like the Americans also tried to come up with one. Yeah, we we definitely see a lot of this takeoff in World War Two, but it's cool to see these World War One ones. What a funky little thing! It's just a Renault. It's just a that's, Renault. That's a tractor with a with a. Uh... I've seen the I've seen the motorcycle. There's a carrier Mark One that was mentioned earlier. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so so we're starting to. <laughs> it, it's it's amazing to me how fast uh, the tanks changed. Uh, going towards the end of World War One, and then of course into World War Two, where we've already been kind of like working on the technology a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see uh, that'll be a discussion for another time. I'm not getting into that. I could talk so long on tanks. I am not getting started on that one right now. Tanks is going to be a different discussion. Tanks is uh, yeah. tanks is most of where I have my history major in. Let's put it that way. Fair enough, but I, I mean, these aren't really. Tanks, but uh, yeah, but these are uh, self propelled artillery, yes. Thank you, Pippin. Back on track for Artie. Um, I, yeah, so going back to our gas discussion leading into World War II, um, a very notable hit with gas was that the, the British had made heavy use of mustard gas, uh, sieging Bavarian units, which were German units, and uh, fun little not so much fun, but a horrifying little factoid about that. Uh, the reason that the Germans stopped using gas shells after World War Two or World War One, sorry, and didn't use them basically at all in military endeavors for World War Two, is um, there was a very specific man that fought with the Bavarian infantry during World War One, and uh, he was <laughs> a political leader of Germany during World War Two. And if you know any history at all, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm not going to talk about his name online because I don't want to get banned from Twitch. Let's just say he's a failed painter. Yeah, he's a failed Austrian painter, and that, that should explain literally everything. But yeah, that, that's actually something that happened, which is why he, of all people, and I couldn't believe this when I saw and read about that, but he, of all people, swore off of it. Which is, um, you know, doesn't make him any less evil, but it's interesting to note, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least he's got morals somewhere. Yeah. It may be few and far between, but there, I it's guess they're somewhere. It's something. <laughs> it's, I, I'm it's not something. touching that one with a 10-foot yeah. to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, back, or, a, or a field gun. Or a field gun. But yeah, back on uh, artillery, that leads us very neatly, I think, into World War Two, And oh... My goodness, we see so much just artillery in general in World War II. Yeah, that's that we're getting now. We're getting into the use of artillery that is designed to travel. 
Yeah, now we're getting into the, hey, I have this cool idea for a gun. I should do meth about it. Oh, how much it. How much boom does it take to launch this uh, this man-sized object through uh, through the air? There you go. There's your uh, self-propelled uh, German. Oh, I knew one existed. Thank there you. you go. It's a flat M truck. 1914. It's a flat it's truck, that's why. Yep. Is it 7.7 .7 centimeters? Is this is that World War One? That is World War One, yes. Okay, they love those helmets. <laughs> yeah, but I well, mean they're uh, they're useful. They're they that they're made really well, so mm -hmm. I don't blame them. Well, it's designed around the German pickle halba, or the Prussian pickle halba. It's actually really good because it keeps stuff from falling down your shirt and stuff, and it's got mm -hmm. like you know yeah. visor or whatever. But away from helmet design. <laughs> yeah, uh, away from the stall helm of doom. Yeah. <laughs> back onto artillery. Yeah, in back to World artillery. II, the anything they learned in World War One was kicked into overdrive. Yeah, World War One yeah. was definitely like, if World War One was the renaissance of artillery, World War Two was the industrial revolution. And a lot of drugs were being used. So yeah, like countership Latin. Yeah. When at, you know, at this point, it's in your soda. It's in your. It's in your freaking. Uh, gum it's it's in your chocolate people are heavily on drugs right now and you can tell by the way they design these guns yeah, i mean your average like artillery pieces stay pretty much the same the british have their quick firing guns those those came around in world war one and pretty much stayed the same for world war two just with different caliber mm -hmm. uh you've got the germans with their 105s which were basically artillery pieces from world war one that they repurposed and you know modernized Literally zero change, just flawless gun as it is. <laughs> Use what you got, right? Uh, yeah, the Americans developed the 105 and then the 155 Long Tom, which was just the 105 but chunkier. Uh, so on that front, you see pretty much the same thing. But what really, really starts taking off is two things in World War One or World War Two. Sorry, uh, you see a lot more mortars show up, and you see well, I say two things, really three things. Uh, you see a lot of um, self-propelled guns. Like, they got that idea towards the end of World War One. They see all oh, these tanks are cool. What if we stuck an artillery piece on it? And you just see that a lot in World War Two. Yeah, you can you can move a bigger gun with less people. Mm -hmm. And then something else that we see a lot of that I I almost forgot to touch on is we see a lot of art anti-aircraft artillery in World War Two. Yeah, and now like especially with the Germans, that one was kind of like an, a happy accident. Yeah. You're like, hey, what if what if we turn this thing to the sky and shot that plane up there? Oh, it works really well. Yeah, and so. they did the same thing in reverse in World War Two. Yeah. What if we took this big air cannon that's just like big chunky eighty-eight millimeter? Because you know we don't have any really good anti-tank guns to kill these British tanks with uh, in Africa. So Rommel goes, hmm, what if I just did this and turns an eighty-eight flak? down towards British, inf or British infantry and tanks and just uh, has a field day. Kaboom. Yeah. Yeah, Germans liked it so much they put it on a tiger tank and called it a day. Yeah. And then later the King Tiger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know you've made it as a German gun manufacturer if they start putting your gun on their tanks. <laughs> and uh, I, I like um, <laughs> in um war thunder actually has a really funny little tractor with a with a uh pack on the back oh yeah the pack wagon yeah i i think it's just so funny because i mean you still see stuff like that modern day mm -hmm. depending on what you know where where you're looking in the world oh yeah i mean but it's just 
Yeah, but but it's I, I just find it funny. It's like, all right, re, we need we need this pack gun really mobile. We're just gonna put it on the back of this utility truck, and call it a day. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there's even but, a funkier one. Here it is. This is of course a reproduction <laughs> of it, but uh, there's one where you would have to flip down the sides and then it has like a full traversal. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of the open top design just because it's historically been pretty bad idea. Found it. There's your historical you know, photo of it. There we go. But you know, it's just like you've got your crew all out in the open. It's really nice for the crew, except when they're in like direct combat. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the armor on that is about like the consistency of paper. Yeah, when well, I mean some some tanks it. Some tanks you could uh, were like literally like paper thin, and I believe some small arms could get through uh, the armor of some really light tanks. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to think about at this time what the purpose of that armor was. They weren't sending these guns to go and fight with tanks. They were sending them to back up infantry as artillery support. So the worst they would have to deal with is small arms fire. Yeah. So they only had to protect against small arms fire. Yeah. Until um, until Sherman pops up somewhere over the you know over <laughs> off, off in the distance. Sherman tank be like mm, uh, some chungus. some seventy eight or something you know. Yeah, it's um it's interesting that a lot of what we see is SPGs and anti air SPGs and stuff like that. A lot of them are repurposed from older tank designs, and I'm not just talking about the Germans because the Germans are the ones that everybody knows does this, but the British, the Archer. Uh, tank destroyer, um, the sexton, the the, yeah, the sexton, the bishop, the wolverine. Uh, really, the only purpose-built TDs were uh, a couple of German ones, like the the Stugs. Cassia posted. Cassia posted a really funny one, and <laughs> it's just a legitimate tractor carrying, like dragging artillery. That's actually funny. The um, Russians did have one that was purpose-built. Yeah, the Sioux. The ISU-152? Yep. And that thing is, um, man, if you get a picture of that, that thing is just big, chunky, and kind of horrifying. That thing had a 152mm cannon, which doesn't sound all that impressive in talking about artillery until we realize that's a dedicated anti-tank gun. Yeah. Yeah, it's... That it's... for artillery purposes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, alright, so when we're not facing tank go boom into air when tank is there go boom into tank you know yeah and this thing this thing was a knock 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 funny german mustache man have a vibe check (laughs) yeah and of course if you're talking self-propelled artillery one of the more famous ones uh, which was these uh concrete busters which were like the churchill hvre i believe it is Mm -hmm. i might be getting the abbreviation avre AVR, which is uh, Armored Vehicle Royal Engineers. Yep. They had huge cannons on them, and one, of course one of the more famous ones of that is uh, nicknamed Stalin's Refrigerator, which is the old KV-2. <laughs> yes, sir. It is purely designed to blow bunkers. Yeah, I forget. Could have phrased that a little differently, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what kind of cannon the KV-2 had on it, but I know it's big and it's terrifying. Hey, Dimitri, what you got? Nothing? Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, but um, <laughs> you know, some artillery guns is just like, you know, they're really effective close range. So we're gonna we're gonna use them close range instead of for their intended purpose. Yeah, it works good. I mean, they worked yeah, really good for it. One hundred and fifty-two millimeter howitzer. Thank you. Yeah, hundred and fifty-two. That thing is, man. They didn't build a lot of KV-2s, but man, those things were terrifying every time they showed up. Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny. Those those KV-2s are, you know, it's just literally like your regular chassis and then big block on top, you know? Yeah, if there was one thing Clement Voroshlov could actually do, aside from generaling, which he was not that great at, it was build a tank. <laughs> that is true. But yeah, yeah. Um, the series is a testament to that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's, um, you know, we're we're getting to the point where we need to go back to, uh, back to the discussion of the railway guns. Yes, because there's some, there's a really, really impressive one that I think most people know, if they, uh, if they had any interest in World War II, which. I know most middle school boys <laughs> usually tend to get into. Listen, it's a very popular topic. It is, and it's you know pretty relevant, being only less than a hundred years ago. Yeah, <laughs> which is interesting to think about because I think like you know my great grandfather was in World War II, you know, <laughs> so you know, just a couple generations back for me. Mm -hmm. And then for some of the older folk, you know, just one generation back, you know? Yeah. But, but you know, the, of course, we're talking about the ye old Charles Gustav gun. Ah, Charles. yes. Dora Gustav. <laughs> Carl, sorry, Carl. Carl Gustav and Dora Gustav. Charles, yeah. Yeah. Gustav and Dora. Yeah, and funny fact, funny anecdote about that. I don't remember what Carl Gustav was named after, but Dora Gustav was named after Krupp's uh, husband, Krupp's wife. <laughs> uh, the, it was a uh, Swerver Gustav. Schwerer Gustav, yeah. Yeah, the Gustav guns, and the Germans used those to great effect over in the Western Front. They were big, they were powerful, they were just, just kind of horrifying guns. Yeah, I didn't. I believe they had to like kind of rework the French tracks to make the uh, Gustav run on it because they yes. were like different widths. Yes. No, um, it was not rework the track. They had to lay new track. Yeah. yeah so they yeah. had to basically, I was going to say something like that. Uh, they basically had to double every track. So instead of having like, easiest way to describe this is think of like two tracks running parallel on either like side. So you've got, yeah, okay, thank you, Zen. Zen. Zen's got a really good picture of it. Look look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Look how much track is laid for that. And it looks all funky because it's like halfway doubled up. It, it's just weird. Welcome to welcome to how they had to load and fire this thing. It's Yeah. But it you know, it worked really good. The German German ingenuity at its finest being horrifying as usual. Yeah, and we see it. We see it in just about everything they make because they make some variation that is horrifying, be it a ship or a giant gun. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I I wasn't really referring to the um 
to like, you know, them having to lay new line. I was referring to, I believe that at this time, German and French rails were not compatible with each other. I, don't I believe they were about, different with. I was going to say, I don't know about German and French rails. I know German and Russian rails definitely weren't. Uh, like, Germany had specific, like, railroad battalions made to go fix the rail so that it could be compatible with the Russian rail. The We're snow and we need them. The weird thing with the Gustav gun is, even though it's super famous because it's the biggest cannon ever created, it was barely used. Yeah, like, it was used to great effect when they used it, but they didn't use it very much because, you know, it's big, it's expensive, it's hard to move. The only time they yeah, if you, if you thought that... To forts in France, mm -hmm. and that was just during their blitzkrieg. After that, the gun sat silent. Yeah, until it was captured by American paratroopers. Yeah, well, they tried to destroy it. <laughs> Good luck. Well, well, one of them know. lived. I think it was Dora that lived. I believe you. That's the one where you see the American paratroopers on top of it. But Gustav itself, that cannon got dismantled. Yeah. Speaking but if you them. if you thought the last shell was big, this one. The that's charge a, is about yeah, as tall as the person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, the the charge is is now at the armpit height, and the actual round is double, if not like two and a half times taller than an average person. So <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> you've got it, you're you're firing a ship cannon at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you, it's it's not. It's bigger than naval artillery. Naval artillery was 12-inch, which was like 210 millimeter. Yeah, yeah. This was 800 millimeter. Yeah, it's it's. You know, you could probably you could probably sink a ship quicker with this than an actual ship to ship. Yeah. It's it's a pretty big shell. The largest naval guns was 18-inch. Thank you, Dimitri. Yamato moment. <laughs> Yamato moment, yeah. Um, but yeah, something else that's got a fun name by Carl. Uh, let's talk about something that was used exclusively on the Eastern Front. Let's talk about Karl Garat. Also known as Karl uh, Thor. Oh man, the Karl Thor, my beloved. <laughs> Listen, I, I'm i a sucker for big artillery pieces. The Karl Thor was one of the biggest sitting in it. This is what I thought it was before. This is 600mm siege mortar. Look at that thing, Castilla posted. Look at that. That's the Carl Garab. Yeah. Thank you, son. This thing was built on a purpose-built tread. I think they only made one. I might be wrong. They might have made two. They made a couple. Yeah, I know one that... was named Thor, and then I think Loki, and then a third one. I can't remember its name. Probably Freya. It might have been Freya, but okay. I know there was about three. I yeah. don't know if there's more. So, so you're telling me they can make one of these things move oh, around, but they sorry. can't make a freaking mouse move? Like, come on. I did a couple. <laughs> I did a bit of digging. There's seven. Seven? They built seven of the things? I didn't even know that. Yep. Oh, my lord. Number one was called Adam, Ava, Thor, Odin, Loki, Zoo, and the last one never got a name. Hmm. Odin, so not Freya, but Odin. Yep. Good to know. But yeah, so the most famous use of the Karl Thor uh, Siege Mortar, because they did use these things, they actively used these things in the battle, um, was the Siege of Sevastopol. Which, if you don't know what Sevastopol looks like, Sevastopol is on the, the Black Sea. 
It's on the Crimean Peninsula. And that's a dud shell, by the way. That's a dud. Good lord. And um, so basically, this thing was sent to crack lines that the Russians had been building up for uh, roughly two years at this point, which is a very long, long time. Um, but yeah, so this this thing was absolutely nuts. Oh, uh, is that a picture of it actually hitting a building? Yeah, that's the two-ton mortar shell hitting. Yeah. God. That, that's just... That looks like your average explosion, but, you know, 90 degrees. Much chunky, yeah. <laughs> Here we are. You know that dud I sent earlier? Here's the sappers disarming it. Sheesh. <laughs> yeah, look at how big the... What's interesting is the shell, because this is a big siege mortar, right? The shell is actually smaller than the other shells. It's only about looking at that image and you know just doing a little bit of guesswork here. That's only about the size of a man, so it's actually. I'd, say, I'd say it's like a, a man and a half or a man and a quarter. Yeah, we'll figure that's also without the charge because the charge has to come yeah. after that. Yeah, the, the charge the charge is probably another. So like together is probably like two people. Yeah, I'd say that's probably accurate. Uh, just to give you an idea, the uh, idea these things weighed. Uh, the heavy concrete weighed about 4,780, Good and then Lord. the light concrete piercing was 3,700. Good that's in pounds. And that's a light. <laughs> light, and he says. The explosive charge, like the weight of the explosive filling, weighed on the heavy one about 637 pounds, and the light was, I want to say, about 500 it's only a matter of like a hundred pounds. Yeah, light pieces. Yeah. But they pierced over eighty eight no oh, I almost said eighty. It pierced over eight feet of concrete. That's Wow, that's well. And imagine one of these freaking coming up and knocking on your front door, which is now in Spain. <laughs> From France. It, yeah. Like, oh yes, uh, my my house in Calais that is now in like Iberia. Yeah, it, your your front door, you know, aiming towards Russia from the German side, fired and it went around and ended up in uh, in Spain somewhere, you know, just all the way. Yeah. How many how many tons did you say one of these was in? Just so I can provide a reference. Uh, the weight of the shell. Yeah. Uh, 4,780 pounds for the heavy. So, for reference, that's two tons. That's like a pickup truck. Actually, no, I take it back, because a pickup truck's about half a ton. That's a deuce and a half. That is, like, your big, huge RV trucks that are basically semi-trucks. Your pickup truck would be the light one, because yeah. it's 3,700. No, nah, pickup truck is half a ton. A ton is one thousand, or 2,000 pounds. Oh, sorry, I thought you said a ton and a half. No. Nah. A ton is 2,204 pounds. Oh. Oh. <laughs> We're being precise here. Yeah, it's heavy, though. Like, that's the point. Yeah. Like, this thing is... Golly. Yep. But yeah, that's uh, that's some funny funny German mustache marine artillery there. <laughs> I 
technically it's a rocket, and we'll use this as our segues in into that other thing. Okay. Um, the VG3 mountain gun is the funniest thing I've ever heard of. And it's basically just Germany's attempt to build a real gun in the 40s. Oh, you're talking about V3. Yeah, V3. I'm sorry, not VG3. My bad. I was, like, super confused. I was, like, <laughs> I was looking for a whole new thing. Yeah, I'll be the first to say artillery is not my, like, complete forte. I'm definitely a tank guy. Oh, you're talking about the, uh, the London gun? The uh, London gun, gun yeah. Okay, I, you lost me a little bit on that one. I was like, which one are you talking about? Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, the, the freaking. Rocket. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, is it a rocket? Is Or is it? Because well, I, I know they had. They would fire one of those every six seconds. Good lord. But it was fixed artillery. Sorry, I uh, went to a different channel for a moment. <laughs> You're good. Uh, can you still hear us, or do you need to rejoin stage? Okay, and we can hear you, so we're good. Yeah. But it would, I guess, be considered a rocket artillery because it used propellants and mostly solid fuel rocket boosters. Yeah. There you to go. To boost it up the tube. Yep. And speaking of rockets, let's use that as a segue. Hi, I'm very, very smart. Um, let's use that as a segue into looking into our favorite topic, rocket artillery. Yeah, because World War II saw the resurgence of uh, the rocket artillery. Yeah, we haven't seen rockets for reference uh, since Congreve rockets back in, like, the American Revolutionary period. And we're starting to see, like, actual rockets at this point. Because we have the V3 cannon, which is the is the London um, the London cannon. Or the 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 whatever they call it, oh, um, but you also have the V three rocket, which is that's a V two. But we also have a V three rocket, which it might it may it may not be a. I may be looking at the wrong one, but there is a V three rocket. <laughs> that's actually pretty wild. Uh, the only one I know of that's called a V three is from Command and Conquer. <laughs> Uh, but if you can there is it, the fine. there is the V2 rocket I know about, yeah. which is your what basically looks like a standard space shuttle launcher, and that's that's a mean sucker in and of itself, because that was purely designed to. And there are some things I don't, I don't want to get too into political part, but uh, the V2 rocket it was just given enough fuel to get to the target and go boom. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Really, the only thing notable, like crazy notable about it, aside from the fact that it was used as a specifically a terror weapon, is the fact that this was one of the world's first intercontinental ballistic missiles that went into atmosphere. Yep. Now, it only traveled through atmosphere for like seconds or minutes or something, but you know, this is it is the first rocket that has left like regular air and gone into atmo. And Not the first the object, air. though, because we have the things up in the sky. <laughs> yeah, the manhole cover. <laughs> world's and first, the, like uh... world's first intercontinental ballistic object, a manhole cover. Yeah, the, but and the first, the first one on purpose is the is the V two. 
<laughs> the V2s and stuff. And later V2s also later also had a guidance system, which is one of the first times we had rockets with guidances. Yeah. Because before that, it was just fuel it enough to get it to go, then let it go. Mm-hmm. Which is and insane I, to think about. And it's funny because by the time they started getting to their target, they'd start sputtering. Mm -hmm. So they made a very unique noise. noise a very distinctive noise by the time they got to london or whatever they were trying to hit because it would start sputtering out and it'd make this really loud just popping noise and people knew at that point it's like all right time to time to hide a little bit you know let's i think you're confusing the v2 with the v1 am i that might be it because the v1 is called the doodle bug because it used a pulse jet engine there you go that's probably that then then that's probably what i'm thinking of yeah that's it i'm looking it up right now and the v1 the, the v1 uh, flying bomb yeah that's a that's a rocket in and of itself it was a pulse jet which is one of the very very first jet engines yeah and what they would do for those is they would fill it up enough to hit their targets in London. And the way they would know they hit their targets is listening to the British broadcast system. And the British get smart about it. They realized they were listening to the broadcast system. So they would tell them that their bombs went short when they hit London. So they would fill it up more so it would land past London. Yeah, there you go. And then they would say, oh, it hit some random square in London, but nobody actually got hit by it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the British Air Force, because these were unguided munitions, they were just launched. The V-1, uh, the British Air Force would go over with Spitfires and use the wings of the plane to try to tip the bomb. And that okay. would actually knock it off course enough that sometimes it would never even make it to England. That's pretty cool, actually. And um, the, it's uh, it's kind of funny. Um, this is about the time that's really cool. This is about the time that uh, the Boy Scouts was being created because uh, there's a guy named Baden Powell who is a soldier or was a British soldier, and he and he's the one who created uh, scouting. And um, back in the day, scouting was a uh, more military esque thing. So they would they would use uh, them to they they they'd uh, sit out and they'd listen for for uh, you know things coming in. So <laughs> they um, you know just kind of kind of def to defend their homes. They'd uh, you have devices where it's like giant uh, horns, uh, like here li listening horns. Uh, or these, you know, scouts would go out and they would listen for these things so they could give a early warning because you can hear the, uh, a lot of these uh, louder aircraft or whatever coming in from a good distance away. Yeah, uh, King wants to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One second here. Hi, King. Uh, hello, hello. Hello. Welcome to you. Welcome, not YouTube. Welcome to Twitch. Thank you very much. Um, glad to be here. Um, if we want to talk about, um, if we're talking about like guidance systems and 
uh, used during um, World War Two. Uh, I hope you don't mind me um, moving this on to another uh, German weapon system used. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, which was, I'd say, is the um, I think it's the first ever uh, bomb to have guidance, and uh, it's called the uh, the Fritz X. I don't know if any of you have heard of that I've one, never heard but of it, no. um, it was a wild. it's a anti ship. Um, radio-guided uh, glide bomb, which the Germany, Germans had in service from around, like, uh, the uh, late period of the war, so about, like, 43 to 44, 45-ish. Mm-hmm. And that um, piece of equipment is crazy. Uh, because it actually saw... Um, it saw a decent amount of service, but it wasn't in, like... You know, it wasn't widespread, but when it was used, it was quite terrifying. Yeah, and it kind of resembles our modern-day uh, Typhoon missile systems. Okay. That sounds kind of horrifying. Yeah. I think it's about time we got back to topic, because we've gotten pretty far. Yeah, we're being good. Uh, our our peanut gallery isn't helping either. Get back onto the artillery. The uh, with the reintroduction of rocket artillery, we have seen stuff like the Nebelwerfer, which is uh, one of the more famous German artillery pieces, mm-hmm. and you also had the Americans with the uh, Calliope, yeah, which wasn't really a ground based. It was set on top of a Sherman tank and shot. Then you had the Russians with the Katusha, which it, just about everybody knows about that one. A rocket tube set up on the back of a basically a milk truck. And then, of course, a, a little more, a little known in some places, but also not so much known as the Nebelwerfer, the land mattress. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not many people talk about the land mattress for some reason. Which is kind of just a... Uh, <laughs> it was kind of just a uh, cal- uh, calliope on the ground. Yep. But, man... But um... they saw extensive uses in the war outside of, like, the Americans with the calliope because it, I, that has rarely seen combat. It was not too effective for the Americans compared to their heavy artillery like the long tom. Right. Yeah, the Americans didn't really like, didn't really use the Calliope-style artillery that much, but man, they used their long toms really, really good. Yeah, what's the, what's the old saying? Um, if you're if you're ever unsure on who you're um, fighting, fire a couple rounds in their direction, and if you get shelled, it's the Americans. Yeah. If, uh, if the, it's, um, how does it go? It's, um, if you're ever confused on who you're fighting, uh, shoot, shoot a rifle shot at them. If they return fire in a very orderly and precise manner, it's Germans. If they return fire in a very um, timed and well well entrenched manner, it's British. If they return fire in a very um, proud and active manner, it's the French. If they wait a few minutes and then explode your position with artillery shells, it's Americans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's your picture of the Long Tom. Yes, the Long Tom. The Long Tom's such a great artillery piece, too. Just stepping away from field artillery, from rocket artillery for a second. The Americans used the Long Tom up until, like, the 80s when they replaced it with the one was, or the modern artillery pieces that we use today. And 177. And 177s, yep. Um, until then, they were just using the Long Tom. They used it all the way through Korea, all the way through Vietnam. It's just a really good artillery piece. I might get that designation wrong because there's a lot of freaking sevens in that. No, one triple seven is correct. Gotcha. But yeah, actually coming forward a little bit, uh, we don't see too much development from artillery through Korea and Vietnam. Um, really, because there wasn't a lot of people fighting. There's some still, especially on the American side. Yeah, now now we're kind of using like chemicals and and uh, napalm. <laughs> Yeah, napalm, that was a fun thing to come out of World War II, and by fun, I mean horrifying. And white phosphorus. White phosphorus is an interesting one, just because it wasn't really meant to be used on people. Our early smoke grenades were made, were made of white phosphorus, did you know that? Yep. That's why they're called Willy Pete nades. And then yeah, don't go running through that cloud. When yeah. they threw the grenades, they found out that the bigger particles of it would stick to people. Yeah. And uh, there goes into Vietnam and uh, Willie Pete and Napalm. Yeah, we're it's just so much it's so much jungle that artillery was just kind of like we can set it up and we will use it because they did just mm -hmm. as much. But it's like you know when everything kind of looks the same, it's hard to get your bearings and set a you know accurate shot. Because you're not using like a GPS guided anything right now. You're still kind of just phoning it in. Yeah. I do want to ask a question and hopefully get a correction. Did the Americans actually ever use rocket artillery up until like Panama? Cali. Besides the Calipi. Cali, I didn't see too much usage. Um... Like, did they use it in Korea and Vietnam? Because I've. Do not remember any Not really, just because Korea and Vietnam weren't very conductive to artillery in the first place. The only really, like, big artillery doodles of Vietnam was, like, Quezon and Yadrang. Yeah. The, 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 only, the only rockets the only rockets I can think that they probably would have used would be, like, aircraft rockets, rocket maybe. Pod. Yeah, rocket pods from planes. That would have been used. I mean, there's the M16. If you know what that is. Uh, probably not, since we're not really sure. Gonna... Obscure. Yeah, you'll have to send a picture of that one, Dimitri. Is that what you just posted right Oh, now? that's a land mattress kind of thing, okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, especially Vietnam, <laughs> the well, soldiers weren't really getting along anyways with see, each other. I don't think uh, putting rockets into the mix would have been very <laughs> helpful. You guys know the the M8 rockets that they strapped to the underside of planes, yeah, the little three, yeah. So apparently there's a Sherman that was like it was kind of like Cal Calliope, but it was literally just M8 rockets. Strapped and Daisy above. chain, huh? I think oh, it was called the, the Daisy found, chain or something like that. I actually found a version of it that was used in Korea. There, there you go. go. Very base. Thank you, Zen. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, if you got the if you have it, you know, use it and see how effective it is. If it's not very effective, don't use it. You know? Yeah. Because that, of these uh wars not breaking out, the use of artillery also kind of dwindled. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I would say probably until the Americans got into the uh, Gulf War. Because they weren't really used in Panama either. Panama was more of the, the American military picking up itself back up by the bootstraps after Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. That was uh that was the the bounce back war, you know, instead of like having a bounce back crush or something, it's just a bounce back war. <laughs> where you're getting uh you're kinda getting everybody back on board with your with your antics. And then in the Gulf War, they just kicked everything back into gear. And yeah. that's where you saw your yeah rebound yeah. Uh, in the Gulf War, that's where you had your resurgence of uh, artillery, especially for the American side. Because we started to use MLRSs to pound positions. Paladins, one hundred seven S Paladins. Yep, and uh, then we would also use the self-propelled guns, uh, tow artillery, and that's yeah. not towed. That's a TOW. Yeah, some crazy stuff. Every and now seven. we've got things like time on target shilling. Oh yeah. The Patriot missile defense. Patriots are cool. The grid square killer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just so it's kind of interesting to see kind of like where things start going because we're getting into some interesting weird things. Because we're, you know, maybe it's the radiation, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Speaking of radiation, how about Atomic Annie? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's make an artillery piece that shoots nukes. Yep. Or a mortar piece that the infantry who launched it has no hope of getting out of the out of the zone in time. <laughs> Davy, David Crockett. Yeah. I, I still love that they created something like that where it launches a small nuke, but it's still enough to where they can't get away from it in time. So it's like a suicide uh, mission kind of mortar, you know? Only the US. <laughs> I don't know about that one. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. Only in like <laughs> certain Half places. of the world. <laughs> but, uh... Going back forward again with the Gulf War, it also, with the Americans changing doctrine, we were now fighting a war basically almost like a Blitzkrieg style. Mm -hmm. Yes, If we couldn't hit it with uh, helicopters and planes and stuff, we would pound it with artillery, and we needed mobile artillery. And at first, that was the uh, the MLRS system. I can't remember its name, but I posted a picture of it with the uh, armored canopy with tracks. And it would fire, uh, I think it was 12 tubes. Something like that, yeah. And that wasn't, that was good, but they were hoping that, or well, not hoping, but they were planning on going even faster in war. So they came up with the high Mars. Ah, uh, the high Mars. They just take one of those sections of tubes and then put them onto a truck, which is way faster than a piece of tracked artillery. 
Yeah, and, you know, there's a reason HIMARS are still used by the U.S. military and other militaries today. Like, they're, they're really good for shoot-and-scoot tactics. Barracuda uh, brought up, Barracuda brought up a good point going back to Vietnam. It's um, uh, he he said that all the forward operating bases were fire bases, but trying to get anything into the dense jungle was as effective as using spotted air, as using spotted air support. Mm -hmm. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. To show you the resemblance, there's the M two seventy, and then there's the High Mars. They use the same rocket pods, but it's just one of them instead of two. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy how how fast it turned from, you know, just unguided shells to missiles. <laughs> to missiles yeah. that will hit in the same spot, fired in three different times. Yeah. <laughs> it's. It's wild. It's it's you know. Yeah. I, I won't I won't start getting uh, <laughs> philosophical about it, but it's just crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. They, we've we've advanced very far when it comes to shooting things from very very far away. Yeah. It, it's always been the 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 goal of of war is always um, let's try and kill that guy from further distances. <laughs> You know, oh, I talk about far distance, bro. <laughs> but no, I think I think this is probably a the good place to 20? good place to wind it down. <laughs> I'm looking at the time anyway. Yeah, it's, we're starting to get to a lull where we're getting caught up on modern stuff. So I think uh, I think this would be a good. I think place I, yeah, I think I think we're right. We're, I think we're right about there. Yeah, um, who wants to end it tonight? Zen, why don't you end us off tonight? Okay. Well, we do hope you have enjoyed our uh, talk on artillery. Everything in the first episode from the uh, Brum bars and the massive bombardment cannons all the way up to the, what we use in the modern artillery, which is the High Mars, the M270, and the Paladins. And with that... We hope you have enjoyed your time here. We, of course, are going to continue to try to do this. Uh, and Lamb, do you want to give us the uh, fact of the week? Oh, I don't think we got one. Um... <laughs> oh, yeah, we forgot about that. <laughs> well, I'll get, I'll get one oh, real quick. Oh, I'll get I got you. Stitch that up real quick. While you're looking for one, of course, thank you to our troops for uh, for protecting us. We, we're going to we try and... Uh, emphasize that every week because this is a topic right, uh <laughs> hold on hold on um this is of course a, a topic centered directly around military so we always like to thank our troops for giving us these topics and keeping us safe enough and the freedoms to uh go over these dimitri you have a topic or you have a fact you ready for this? Around 1.5 billion shells were fired during World War One. Good lord. That's a seven that's about a seventh of the world's population today. Sheesh. Just over a seventh of the world's population. And that's probably closer to the population around World War One. <laughs> oh my lord. Alright, and with that, I'm gonna go ahead and cut the stream. <laughs>